Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Kuttner, and I'm so glad you're here. This podcast will help you find ways to live a more authentic life. Every week, I have guests on the show from yoga teachers to meditation instructors, everyone to help you feel like the best you. I'm so glad you're here, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So today on the podcast, I have Dr. Constance Sharp. She is the Vice President of Business Development for Rock to Recovery. And today we're going to talk a little bit about addiction and recovery. And I'm just so grateful that uh, Dr. Constance came on the podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So I'd love to just start out by talking about your story. And I know you have a personal story with addiction. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about your story and why you got into this work. Sure. So I come from a background with a lot of child abuse and and, uh, childhood trauma. And that's not why I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober for more than uh, 20 years. So um, that's not why I'm an alcoholic. But what I learned very early was that alcohol helped me deal with those things Mm -hmm. with what was going on in my household and uh it made me gave me an opportunity not to feel Mm. and so alcohol just worked for me in a way that spotlighted the path that I was going to go down you know and and I probably would have become an alcoholic anyway it just might have been slower um so by the time I was uh 22 years old I was drinking two liters or more of hard liquor a day and I was dying. My liver and kidneys were swollen and, and giving out. And I, I knew I didn't have that long. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never expected to live past 25. And then uh, my father suddenly died of a heart attack. And when he passed, I realized that I had an opportunity because I realized I saw I could see that I was an alcoholic. I didn't drink because of my parents. I didn't drink because I drank because I drank because I needed to drink at that point. Right. And uh, that's when I started on a program of recovery. And uh, it took me a little while to get sober because I had every time I would stop drinking, the trauma would come up mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to deal with the two at the same time. So it took me about about two and a half years um, to finally get the sobriety date that I have now. And uh, that was June 29th of 1998. Um, and I haven't had a drink or, or a drug since then. And so, um, you know, it, in my recovery, there were lots of ups and downs because of the trauma that I've experienced. And when I was about eight and a half, nine years sober, I was living in Southern California and uh, I went to 12-step meetings near a VA hospital. So I knew a lot of of individuals from the VA who were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And not only were they not getting sober, but they were also killing themselves in in pretty significant numbers. I, at the time, was extremely depressed and having some real difficulties with, you know, symptoms of that trauma that I experienced. And uh, I was in um, a PhD program and I changed everything that I was doing. And I thought there has to be better treatment for us. I didn't get sober to be miserable. And these, you know, vets are not getting sober and they're dying. And so that's when everything changed for me. I, I changed the course of my study. I changed my dissertation topic. I, everything changed. 
And I started to look at what are the complementary treatments that can be used in addition to traditional psychotherapy that will help people to have, first of all, be able to get sober, and second of all, to be able to be more comfortable in their recovery and really blossom. Um, and that has been um, the focus of my, of my work ever since. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know it's hard to share these vulnerable things, but it really helps because I think, you know, there's, there's somebody who can listen to this and relate or be inspired by your story. So that's why it's so important to continue to share. Um, So I know you mentioned a lot of things about numbing out and trauma and then the complementary therapy. So I would love to unpack that a little bit deeper. So when it came to, you know, trying to cope with what was coming up for you, you said, okay, the trauma came up, the feelings came up. What helped you the most to really deal with those things? Because I think this is kind of the conversation of how do we deal with difficult emotions and feelings and how can we do that in a healthy and productive way? So what do you feel like was some of the most helpful coping mechanisms or strategies for you? So first, I think you have to look at what's coming up, right? right? So if you have PTSD, PTSD is really a host of different symptoms, right? There's a host of different symptoms that go along with that. It could be hypervigilance. You have very often have, you know, depression, anxiety, um, uh, certain kinds of fearfulness. There's all sorts of things that go with that. And whatever your cluster of symptoms are, right? Because very often people with trauma are also diagnosed with anxiety and depression. I don't happen to think that those are separate disorders, that this is all a manifestation of one one root cause of of a traumatic experience. So I think you have to look at the cluster of of symptoms that you have. For example, I had extreme anxiety. Mm -hmm. And like many people with uh, trauma, I like to have, if I went into a room, I like to have my back up against a wall, even now right? Back up against a wall. Nobody's coming back there. Mm. Now, I don't have to have that. That's just where everything's set up. But there's a reason why my life is set up the way it is. In the You can't see this now, but in the room that I'm in, I can see all the doors. I can see all the doors, right? It's just what is comfortable for me. Right. So for example, if you have that kind of anxiety, I would choose, for example, 12-step meetings where I could sit with my back up against a wall where I could see the exits. And it turned out in my home group, I could not do that. We sat in the middle of the room. And so accommodations were made for me so that I always knew who was sitting behind me. They saved a specific seat for me and somebody that I knew sat behind me so that I could stay in the room. Another thing that I did because my anxiety was so bad for the first 10 years of my, 10 years of my recovery, I wanna underscore that. I uh, needle pointed whenever I was in, you know, a recovery meeting or something like that, because I needed something to ground myself. I needed something for my hands to do so that I could pay attention. So I think these tools depend on the specific issues that a person is having, right? If you're, if your issue is hypervigilance, right? You're looking all over the place. Who's coming, who's coming, who's coming. Then there are grounding techniques, Right. For example, my my go-to is I want to sit with my feet underneath me. I want to sit cross-legged and uh, with my feet underneath me. I want to get up. I want to get up away from things. 
but that heightens the anxiety. And what I learned is if I put my feet on the ground and really ground, literally ground myself and feel myself in this chair mm. in this time, because part of the problem with trauma too is a lack of temporality, right? right? It kind of feels like the past is intruding or something else is coming. Or if I'm, oh, wait a minute, I'm at dinner with my friends and um, I'm perfectly fine. Right. But it, it's that kind of grounding. It's really breathing deep. Right. So we look at the specific manifestations of the problem in order to find coping tools. Right. Now, that said, there are certain things that really help overall. For example, acupuncture tends to be very, very good. I love it because it's passive. All I have to do is show up to the place and they put needles in. So, <laughs> Right. I don't have to I don't have to write a thing. I don't have to talk to anybody. I don't have to try to bend my body into some posture that I can't possibly do. Right. None of that. I just show up to the place. And there are there's, you know, some significant research on the psychosocial benefits of acupuncture. Right. That's going to help with issues across the board. Yes. You know, so there are so while there are some activities that are very specific to the symptoms that an individual is experiencing, there are also other activities that are um, more generalized. What I like to focus on are solutions, actions that we can take that have limited or no side effects. So, for example, as you said at the beginning, I work with an organization, Rock to Recovery. Rock to Recovery uh, is musicians who are in recovery. A lot of them are genuine rock stars who have retired from bands that you've heard of, who then go into addiction treatment centers and work with, write songs and play music with non-musicians. It's not musicians helping other musicians, it's musicians helping other people who were early in recovery. Now, when I first saw the group, I thought, perfect. Why, why wouldn't I want to go learn more about this? Because what can go wrong? What's the neg possible negative outcome of having this kind of a music group in an addiction treatment facility, for example, which is where I first encountered it. We work with mental health and veterans and all children and all different sorts of areas. But I saw them first in an addiction treatment. Well, what could go wrong? You could not write a song. You couldn't, maybe you don't finish the song. Uh, maybe it's not very good. It's not gonna win a Grammy. Okay. Um, maybe someone doesn't wanna participate and leaves. Um, and doesn't get the benefit of it. Maybe if someone falls asleep in the back, there's really no downside. Whereas if you look at sort different sorts of something like, you know, uh, electroconvulsive therapy, right? Shock treatment, we used to call it, right? Well, there's some, there's some real things to look at there in terms of, of, of possible negative consequences. When you're looking at something like, you know, music, a music group, it's like, well, not a lot can go wrong in terms of negative impact for a person. And so, and even when we work with veterans who are experiencing very extreme trauma, we have, we have uh, chaplains and, and counselors literally right outside the door. And if someone gets triggered, we get them into more supportive services right away. And that's really the, wor the quote unquote worst outcome that you could have is that someone gets triggered and needs, and needs some support. Those are the kinds of therapies that I really am a proponent of because if they help you, they tend to help a lot. And if they don't help you, you don't lose anything. You lose an hour of your life and you go back to doing something else. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to unpack kind of the science behind some of the therapies that you mentioned. I know you mentioned music, you mentioned acupuncture. So for acupuncture, what exactly do you think the reason acupuncture is effective? And what exactly do you think the reason music is effective? I know we can like come to some conclusions together. What is the science? Sure. So they, so these things act in different ways and that's a bonus because Mm -hmm. what we want to do is we want to get the, every system goes to homeostasis, right? Things like to run the same way. You know, an object in motion stays in motion, an object at rest stays at rest, right? You hear this in terms of relationships. It's easier to stay with them than to break up, right? We keep doing the same thing. That's what addiction is just to an extreme. We keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it becomes a neurological pattern, right? And so so with addiction, it isn't the drug. uh, It isn't the drug that's really the problem. Right. Because once I separate you from the substance, you should get better if the drug is the problem, right? If you take too much cocaine and I separate you from cocaine, detox is what we would call detoxification is what we call it in the business, right? If I separate you from cocaine, then you should be done and you should be better. And that's never what happens in addiction. Once we separate the person from the substance, they really become very, you know, emotionally and psychologically fragile. Um, Out in the world, people say they go crazy, which isn't really what's going on, but it's like, whoa, what do I do without this? It's because the thought process is still there. It's a constant process of drug seeking that builds a feedback loop. I'm looking for drugs and then I get them. I got the drink, right? I got the heroin. I got the cocaine. It doesn't matter what it is. I got it. And then as soon as I start to come down, I don't want to get sick. So I'm going to go get it again. It's that process, that drug-seeking process that we need to break up. So these different therapies do it in different ways. But the important thing is when we use them all together, right? When we go to acupuncture and we have music and we have yoga and we have breath work and we have meditate, when we're doing all these things together, there's a synergistic effect because each one affects the brain in a different way, mm-hmm. but each one breaks up that thought process. So if I have acupuncture in the morning it does so it does one thing and then I go to I start to slip back into that drug seeking thought process and then I go to music and it breaks it up in a different way and then I go to therapy and we talk about it and then I go it's breaking that up and then also building a new normal this is what I do in my day Mm -hmm. right I don't think about drinking anymore because I don't drink anymore it isn't hard for me because that isn't my normal for over 20 years. Right. So you kind of, so first you break the cycle. So you don't have that crutch anymore, but then it's like, you know, the stuff comes up. So when the stuff comes up, you integrate these healing modalities to deal with stuff. And then you continue along your path to create better habits and more constructive thought patterns And eventually you no longer need the substance. So I know there's all these different resources out there. I feel like some of them are very strong and they resonate really well with folks. So there's things like community and connection, um, all these things that help people thrive. So what would you say you see as a really important and helpful tool in the process to get better or to recover? Well, before we jump there, let's, if we can, let's go back to the idea of what do these different modalities do? 
Yeah. Just real quick, because then we can connect it to community and how it fits together. Yeah. So like acupuncture works on the, on the idea that there are energetic pathways in the body. Mm-hmm. They're called meridians. Yep. And they either get imbalanced, blocked, clogged, however you want to envision that. Mm-hmm. Acupuncturist using needles puts the body back into an energetic balance. Mm-hmm. And that the idea is that the body can heal itself. Yes. Then you have things that are like somatic experiencing, right? And so somatics, the understanding is that feelings and trauma and emotion are get trapped mm-hmm. in the body and need to be released. Yeah. And you'll see this, shamans call it shaking medicine. Mm-hmm. You'll see this um, if a bird has just been attacked, but gets away from the predator, right? Gets away from the coyote or the cat or whatever it is. They'll go underneath a bush and they'll fluff out their feathers like they do when they're cold and they'll tremble. And that trembling is actually a somatic release of the trauma. Yeah. And so in somatic experiencing, and there are different ways that, that that's done, uh, we, we try to shake loose the traumas that are stuck in the body. Then you have something like music. Playing music and singing activates the entire brain. Mm -hmm. So the whole brain fires, which there really isn't anything else that uses the whole brain like playing music and singing does. So what we do in Rock to Recovery is really playing on understood neurological process. And there are certain things we know about musicians versus non-musicians. First of all, their brains are bigger on the whole. Don't ever tell that to my guys, you know, because that... (laughs) It'll go to their head, literally. Exactly. They're already rock stars, right? But ego. So, but their their brains are bigger and the hemispheres are uh, better connected. There are more connections between the left and the the right hemispheres of the brain in in the brains of musicians. And so understanding that the brain fires that way and connects, we play music and sing. And what it does is it dumps, you know, feel good chemicals in the brain. So serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine. Now, if you, if you're having a bad day, I'm going to assume that you're not a practicing addict. If you're having a bad day, your, you know, chemical balance is here. It's sort of in the normal range. And if you're in your car and traffic is awful and the day's been terrible and you turn on the radio and a song you like comes on and you sing like you don't care, your own car pull karaoke, you feel better. Mm -hmm. That's a neurological response. Now, imagine that you're an addict and your, you know, brain chemicals are in the floor. You're not producing things normally because you're used to getting them from an outside substance, right? right? And then we play music and sing. You still come up to the same, they come up to the same level that you did, right? You went from here to here. They go from here down below the screen to here. They're naturally high. They feel so much better. And we see a, a response of, of, of lessened detox symptoms and, and feeling better and hopefulness and decreases in suicidal ideation, increases in people wanting to stay in treatment longer. All those things happen because of the chemical process that, that's happening in the brain, because the neurological process. And we've broken up that feedback loop, at least for a short the short term, so they're not focused on, I feel bad, I need to use, right? So that's what music does. Then you have things like meditation and yoga and when I say yoga I really mean the breath work that goes with yoga it's not for what we're talking about it's not the postures 
that are important. It's the breathing. So breath work, yogic breathing, those kinds of things, meditation. They also, and there's just a pile of, of research on, on meditation and breath work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. How those, you know, um, improve uh, function, functionality and hopefulness and whatnot. And one of the beautiful things about breath work, like I, I, I work with people who do breath work, breath work healers, breath work practitioners. And if the trauma becomes too much, either the, the person will just naturally titrate back or they just won't be able to do the breathing. Mm-hmm. So for me, for example, I have a very hard time maintaining the breathing mm-hmm. because it's, it becomes too, it becomes too frightening. And so my body just stops. It's like, nope, not doing the breathing. So, so for me, I'm like, mm, breath work's probably not the deal. And sometimes I'll go to a breath work group and just, you know, lie there and hang out like, you know, because of the community. And that was the second part of your question, right? I mean, we can go through different modalities, you know, uh, service animal, emotional support animals, right? Mm-hmm. Listen, people feel better. I have two cats. I locked them up so they wouldn't be jumping across the screen during this interview. But, you know, um, I have cats. People love their dogs. You know, I have a horse. Equine therapy horses do amazing things because horses are prey animals. Mm-hmm. And so, and they're herd animals. And so they respond very much to our emotions. So if you come in angry, horse is not going to get near you. Mm-hmm. If you come in really sad, a horse will come up and be gentle with you, right? And so you have, especially people who've had childhood traumas, this very large animal showing kindness, what, well, what's interpreted as kindness, uh, it, it can be a very cathartic experience. So there's lots of different things that we can do. But the point is, is that some things work for some people and some things don't. Absolutely. But all of them are done with, well, maybe with the exception of meditation, you can do on your own, but really all these things are done with other people, right? Even if you go to acupuncture, there's the acupuncturist that you interact with. And so really what this is also about is building community and building connection because addiction is a problem of isolation. I don't know how to connect to you. And so I'm going to self-soothe my choices by pouring liquor on it because it works. Liquor is an anesthetic right? It anesthetizes me. I don't feel, I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel good. I don't want to feel bad. I don't want to feel happy. I don't want to feel angry. I don't want to feel right. I don't know how to do that very well. And it's gotten me in trouble when I've had those feelings in the past. And so let's just not have them. Right. So what I, I need to learn if I'm going to not use those substances is how do I connect? And there's all these, there's all these studies that, you know, they call them the, the, the rat studies, right? Because they're usually done with rats, but, um, they're, you know, the rat studies about how, if given the opportunity to connect, the rats won't use the substances, but if they are put in isolation, they do. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so we're, you know, I don't like to compare us to rats, but if you put people in isolation, whether it's self-isolation, you know, lack of social skills, Right. Or if you put people in a place where they can lovingly connect with other people, they're going to do better in the latter than in in the former, right? And we're seeing this right now with COVID. People who who are not substance abusers normally, We've seen a huge increase in the in liquor sales. We've seen a huge increase in drinking. We've seen a, a 
massive increase in relapses in the 12-step community. We don't know what our overdose rate is because it's still being tallied, but nobody's really following it because the hospitals are filled, right, with, with people with COVID. And so, you know, what we, we think by this time, this time next year, that the rates of overdose are going to be absolutely shocking. This is why these conversations matter so much. And this is why talking about the therapies and the different modalities to heal are so important because I feel that we need to be like shouting these messages from the rooftops. You can heal yourself. You have the capacity to do so. You just have to figure out what those resources are and connect to them in your community. Mm -hmm. And you know, I love that you gave the rat example because it's really great. I, I remember that research study where they had the rats in like the playground where there were all these fun things and there was other rats and things to play with and the rats didn't use because they were so fulfilled and they were thriving. And so I think there's so many layers to addiction, but I love that you mentioned the really important healing practices that can work for people. And I love that you also gave this idea of self-awareness that you have to know yourself and you have to know like what your tendencies are and what's conducive for you to heal versus somebody else. I think that's the thing about rats versus humans. Humans are a little more complex. So a lot more complex. Yeah. You may, you may not know what works for you. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things that I like about treatment facilities, addiction treatment facilities is that a lot of them, offer a lot of different types of programs. Yeah. And you can find what resonates with you, you know, and what doesn't. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you, you know, and so you can try these things and then you can take what works on the, you know, on the outside with you. Yeah. If you don't have that, that's one of the good things about 12 step programs is that you're going to meet a lot of other people and you'd have the guidance of a sponsor. You choose someone to work with that you respect the way they live their life. And then they can suggest different things to you. You know, I, I uh, have a bunch of friends who are really into the artist's way hmm. and they do, they do morning pages. They write those morning pages like crazy. I love that. You know what? I'm a writer. The last thing I want to do is wake up and write pages because the first thing that I'm going to do in the morning is work on my book. Mm. Right. So it just doesn't, it just doesn't resonate for me. I see the value in it because I write all day. I mean, that's what I do. Right. But, um, so, so there are things that someone say, Oh, I do the artist way. And then you try it and you're, you know, out the cost of the book or borrow it from the library and see if you want one of your own, you know, like you don't have to commit to anything. Right. But you can try these things. Um, there are wonderful morning uh, daily readers, reflections, different kinds of books for all, every, every not just for addiction, you know, um, uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a beautiful one. It has nothing to do with addiction, right? So there are lots of different ways that we can connect and then and receive guidance on, okay, well, what works for you? You know, one of the things um, that is encouraged by what's called the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, is get outside resources. You know, if you go to a 12-step program, great. And also do other things. If you are a part of a religious body, go. 
Go to that religious group and see what they do. And one of the other things that I, I find tremendously helpful, whether you have addiction or not, is service work, volunteering, yeah. helping someone. You know, on, on Christmas, I called, I, I, I was feeling a little sorry for myself because I don't have a, I don't have a family and traditional and it's a pandemic. I can't go to the places I would normally go and do the things I would normally do. Yeah. So I'm, you know, sitting at home watching Netflix, like, you know, all the other sad sacks. And I was like, you know what? This does not have to be how my day is. Yeah. It does not have to be how my day is. And what I started to do, I called every elderly person in my, in my phone book. And you know, and a lot of them are alone too. And they're, they haven't been out. They have their, you know, all the same things that I'm feeling sorry for myself. But the difference was when I called and said, hey, Merry Christmas. I'm Jewish. It doesn't make any difference to me that it's Christmas, but it made a difference to them, right? They were every single one of them. First of all, none of them kept me on the phone forever. And they were all so grateful that somebody thought of them, right? So it doesn't have to be, a big gesture. I don't have to go to the to the homeless shelter and make food for 500 people and or whatever. It literally can be as small as, hey, you know what? There's other people out there who are feeling sad and maybe you could call them. And guess what? Of course, at the end of call, I called four or five people, you know? I was like, if you're over 80, you get a phone call, right? That doesn't seem too much to take out of my day. I felt better. I felt better. Yeah. I have to say like acts of service and connection are very impactful. And I I can relate like when I'm having a bad day, like I reach out to people one to connect and two to help somebody else because it does make you feel better at the end of the day to do something nice for somebody else. It really Absolutely. truly does. Well, and the idea, and this is something that we teach people early in recovery because one of the hallmarks of addiction tends to be self-centeredness. I'm thinking about me and what I need. And this is one of the problems that people with addiction face because when I'm drinking, I behave badly and I'm probably going to hurt you, right? And so let's say you invite me to your wedding, right? I'm your sister, I'm your mother, I'm your whatever. You want me at your wedding, Mm -hmm. but you don't want me there drunk. Well, honey, I'm an alcoholic. I need to drink and I'm going to be drunk now, whether or not I, I might, I might show up to the wedding. I might show up to the wedding late. I might not show up to the wedding at all. I might show up and make an ass of myself. I'm not doing it to hurt you. That's the problem that we all have. It's like you, the thought is I'm doing it. Why can't she just show up sober one time? Because, because I'm an alcoholic and I can't, and I'm going to try to negatively impact you as much as I can, but there's only so much that I can do. There's only so much that I can do. And so that's the problem of addiction for the family and for the friends and for the employer and so forth is that I'm so self-absorbed with what I need that I just can't pay attention to you and what you need in an appropriate way. And so that carries through into early sobriety it's all about me. And that's why in early recovery, we, we encourage people to call others in recovery and say, how are you? How are you? 
Yeah. I mean, one thing that keeps coming up for me is that the healing has to help people return to a natural state. And when I say natural state, I think that classifies things that are very natural for humans that we become disconnected to. So love, joy, playfulness, actual nature, getting outside and being surrounded by natural energy. I feel like nature is healing in its own way. Animals, animals are nature because they're not clouded by all these things that we have in the human experience. So Mm -hmm. connecting to anything that's more natural for humans, like community groups, that's a natural thing that we've evolved with. I feel like these natural healing modalities are important to uh, integrate because they help people return to a state that's healthier. Sure. So there's two different things that you're, that you're talking about. I think first of one, first is nature as in the outdoors. Mm -hmm. Right. And the second is connection through uh, socialization. Mm -hmm. And and I think they're two distinct things. Before I got my PhD, I worked in outdoor education with the Girl Scouts. So I love the outdoors. And there is, again, just like with meditation, there is a stack of research on the benefits of just getting outside of, of literally, like I was saying with the grounding exercise, put your feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. That's effective. But if you can put your feet in grass or sand or dirt, it's even more effective because you get that nowness. So there is the outdoors. And then there's also, you know, how do we connect in social groups? Mm -hmm. Again, addiction is a problem of isolation and not connecting and not knowing how to, uh, you know, put someone else first. And so when you're in a social group, whether it's a religious body or a, a friendship group or volunteering, there are boundaries that are put on and, and a focus put on how do we work together, right? That's why, that's why companies hire team building facilitators, right? Is to say, oh, how do we do this together? How do we work as a team? How do we connect? How do we communicate? How do we care for one another? Mm. You know, Rock to Recovery, for example, every time someone has a birthday or a sobriety anniversary, we celebrate it. That's one of the ways that we connect with each other. A, I'm happy that you're alive, my birthday, right? My natal birthday. And B, I'm happy that you're in recovery. We connect that way through celebration, right? And it might be honoring the person online or whatever, but that connection, that community, what you're calling nature is so important. We are not isolative beings naturally. We are social animals. Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. I think our natural states. So yes, there's the idea of nature, like trees and grass and all the things that are natural in its own way. Mm -hmm. But then there's just the things that are natural about humans that we become disconnected from. And especially for folks who have endured trauma, maybe there is a lack of love, like from others and self-love and love I I believe is our natural state. I believe we're naturally loving and playful and these are natural things for humans. But when you've endured trauma, it's, it's almost like, you know, that pathway in the brain isn't working the same way that it used to. 
we become our best selves in community and, and trauma impedes us in that, right? Trauma impedes us in that because it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Every, this is not a trustworthy, safe situation. Mm-hmm. And then that gets played out so that everything is not a trustworthy or safe situation. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So that's, so to me, that's the difference. And so, but this is what, this is what the job of community building is. This is the idea of, this is why I like support groups, mutual aid groups, right? They call it, they used to call them self-help, but it's not really self-help because I'm not doing it by myself. I'm doing it in connection with other people, right? I have friends who I say, hey, I'm thinking whatever. They're like, that is a really bad idea. Or did you think, because I still, um, even though I'm in recovery a long time, I still tend to have black and white thinking it's this or it's that. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll put an idea out and they'll say, you know, someone else in, also in recovery will say, well, did you think about this gray area? It never occurred to me. Yeah, the gray well, area. That's what, right? That's what community does. Community says that behavior that you're doing is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. One of the things that people with trauma or people in recovery might do is get into victimhood. Well, this happened, poor me. We say, poor me, poor me, pour me a drink, right? If I feel badly, I become justified in my bad behavior, right? Well, you know, bad things happen. Like that's true, uh, let's acknowledge. And also, what are we gonna do about it now? Are we just gonna sit here and be afraid or are we gonna try to do something else? I can't do that on my own. All the, I have love and whatever in me, I can't access that. I need the support of other people in community. Yeah, I think what I was saying is like our natural state is to be in tribes and community because that's what evolution has taught us. And we are expressing what we've learned through evolution. Evolution is in our DNA, like however we've evolved is with us. And if we know that we travel in tribes and we live in families and groups, we're going to crave it on some level. So I, that's why, you know, to highlight what you said about quarantine and social isolation, when you're disconnected from your community and your tribes, you're feeling crappy and that feeling is going to come up for you. And if you don't know how to effectively cope with it or deal with it or restructure things to benefit yourself, then how can you thrive? You know, so it's discovering these things. Well, sure. And so, you know, that's why the travel advisories have failed so miserably. Mm -hmm. Right. When you say to people, you might spread an illness that'll kill people that you love, or you can go see your family. You probably, you yourself won't die. And you can go see your family. Whereas other countries, they just said, no, done. You don't get to travel. Mm-hmm. And they have a much lower a disease spread rate and a much lower death rate. But it's because of exactly what you're talking about is people want to connect. And after 10 months without restriction, I mean, real, like, no, you cannot. When it's an advice, piece of advice, people are like, mm. I'm going to take the risk and see grandma because, because what you're saying is true. I mean, just like I was saying, tribes can be very loving. They also fight each other. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, you know, wh- what we have to do is really understand the complexity of that and see where it benefits us and where it harms us, you know, but we do need that connection. And, and we're seeing that all over the place. You know, one of the, one of the arguments, you know, against quarantine, against lockdown is we're seeing an increase in mental illness. People are getting stir crazy, not being able to connect in the ways that they need to. And that is also true. Yeah. Hospitals are filling with sick people and, you know, people need to connect and we're using substances more and we're acting out in inappropriate ways more because we don't have access to community in the ways that we need to, which is why the virtual world is so important. Mm-hmm. I think it is important to access technology and everything that it can do to benefit us. I'm forever grateful for like Zoom because I get to connect with people and and even this platform to have these conversations because it connects me to something bigger than myself, in my opinion. You know, I think when I feel connected to something that's impactful, that's something that lights me up. So again, it's it's this self-awareness that's really important in life and in healing is being aware the power of choice choosing things that will help you and and being you know really kind to yourself in the process well I think that kindness to self is so important you know I mean I guess first of all I want to say everything has moved all these communities have moved online Mm -hmm. I go to more 12 step groups than I've ever gone to and more meetings than I've ever gone to face to face because I live in the country and I don't have to drive 45 minutes each way to get to the place Yeah, and park the car and get a seat and all that stuff. I literally, I'm here. I'm like, Oh, it's noon on, Mm -hmm. put the password in on. And I really have genuine connections through that. Right. And it's the same thing with the exception of acupuncture, you do have to go in face to face. I used to have to go in to see that guy. But, uh, you know, the meditation group, the breath group, the all those, they're all online. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. They're all online. And so we, we get to have, we get to have that connection, but we have to choose it. I mean, I know so many people are like, I don't want to go to the online group. Well, then you're choosing isolation and you are choosing to hurt yourself. And I think that the idea of letting yourself off the hook also is just of critical importance because like, you know, one of the things that I've always done because I look at complementary therapies, I always try them, right? If I'm not willing to do them myself, I'm certainly not going to recommend them to anyone else. And, And also because I focus on things that have, minimal impact. I want to see what the, what the impact is for me. You know, I've been to college a hundred thousand years, right. To get my degree and, and, and all the things. And it's like, I should be able to do a simple breathing technique, breathe into the belly, breathe into the chest out, breathe into the belly, breathe into the chest out. Right. Doesn't sound too complicated. And sometimes I can't do it. Okay. That's okay. That's okay. You know, the, the, the people I work with are unbelievably talented musicians. Played in A-list bands, toured the world, major festivals, all that kind of thing. I sing okay. 
I can carry a tune. You know, if we're in a session and they need a singer, you know, because sometimes people don't want to step up to the mic, I'll sing the song. That's fine. But I don't have the talent and skill that they have. That's okay. Right? We don't all need to be the A level. We don't need to get it on the first try. Right? We don't need to, we don't, that's, that's not what, what life is about. It's about trying things, seeing what works, seeing what resonates with us. I mean, there are some things that we do despite not wanting to do them, right? I don't necessarily, you know, want to call people. I don't necessarily want to, you know, I'd rather have chocolate cake than broccoli every day of the week, you know, but I eat the broccoli because that's what we do, right? There are certain things that we have to do for our self-care, but letting myself off the hook of, yeah, I would rather eat chocolate cake every day than broccoli. Okay. Those are normal feelings. I'm not good at things sometimes. I wanted to learn how to skateboard. My friends are like, you are over 40. You are not getting on a skateboard because you will fall off. You fall off. I mean, that's part of learning how to skateboard. You fall off. We had a 10-year-old who couldn't say no, put me on a, you know, get me on a skateboard. We took a picture and I was like, you need to get me off of this before I die, right? <laughs> we don't have sense sometimes about what's good for us. But we try things and then we and and we do more of what feels good. Yeah, that's the only way to develop self-awareness is to try. And it's also this uh, mindset of, you know, learning and growth that I think is important too. like it's OK to just show up and start and, and try it and see what happens. I think, you know, like you said, black and white thinking like we have to be good at this or we can't do it is kind of like a block to doing things and getting better. You know, we can't have black and white thinking when we approach new things, we have to be open and, and also have that self-compassion. Like it's okay. You know, it's okay to try. Right. Well, one of the things, especially as we get older, right. Once you're sort of out of your mid twenties, get kind of stuck. Trying. I'm good at that. I'm not good at that. You know, and listen, there are some things that there are windows for, Mm -hmm. right. I'm nearly 50. I'm not going to be an Olympic gymnast. I'm just not. And maybe, maybe let's assume I had the talent when I was eight, right? It's just, there are, there are doors that are, there are doors that are closed, Mm -hmm. but there are very few, very few, because do I need to, if I want to do gymnastics, do I need to do it on that level? Do I need to be one of the best 30 in the world? No. No, if I was going to do it now, I'd jump around on a mat or, you know, I, well, I wouldn't swing on a bar. My arms wouldn't take it, but, you know, play on the bar. It would be play. It would be exercise. It would be connection with other people who like to do that. You know, I live in a community uh, it, where uh, people, all I see is people walking their dogs all day. People love, we can't have, we, I live on a golf course. You can't have a fence. So nobody lets their dog out. They all walk their dogs. And we have miles and miles and miles of trails and people meet up. And even now with masks, people meet up and they walk their dogs and they sit in the parks and they, you know, where the dogs play. You don't have to be the winner of the, of the Westminster dog show to enjoy having a dog. We don't have to be the best. I don't have to play guitar like those guys. I don't have to be an astronaut to enjoy looking at the stars. 
we can come in at the level that we're at. That's what I love about our music program at Rock to Recovery is I, we have a catalog of just shy of 19,000 songs that have been written by people that we work with. Uh, they're not Grammy award winning songs, but the people who wrote them had an experience mm. and they enjoyed the process. And that's part of that human, what you were talking about love and playfulness and what, that's part of the human, try something, be silly, yeah. you know? Yes. I'm, listen, I'm a big lady. I, I'll dance. You want, you want to dance? You know, I'll try. I don't look like prima ballerina, but who cares? They're not paying me, but that's the connection. That's the connection. When one of our rock stars goes into a facility and says, hey, I'm just like you. I had the same problem. I don't live like that anymore. Let me help you. And then connects through the writing of a song. That's the magic. Mm -hmm. The song becomes irrelevant. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and coming on to have this conversation. It's really meaningful to me to unpack the layers of addiction and, and treatment and help people see that their future can exist in the first place and be bright and so much better than their past. So I am grateful that you shared your story and also you know, provided some insight for people. Yeah, and there are lots of resources. I just want to encourage, as we end, I want to encourage people, look online. There are local resources um, for lots of different activities. There are all sorts of things, even in the pandemic, there are all sorts of things that are free or very, very low cost. I know Rock to Recovery, we have free music, uh, meditation, and breathwork groups four times a week. You just come online and join us. If you can donate, great. And if you can't, it's more important that you're there and you're trying and you're connecting. And there are tons of other organizations who are doing the same thing. You know, if you have an internet connection, it's best, it's easiest. And if you, and if you don't, there are other things that are happening and, and please, please reach out. Yes. And don't be afraid. Don't let fear stop you from trying these things for sure. No, because you really will be welcomed. And especially like people with anxiety and trauma who are like, oh, I don't want to, or people who are very depressed and are like, I just don't have the energy. If you can just click that start button, that connect button, you know, that's people will, will stand by you and, and be supportive of you in, in your recovery process. They really will. Yes. Thank you again. And I hope you guys check out Rock to Recovery. It's a great resource. So amazing. So thanks again. Thank you. Hey, friend. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Solutions Podcast. For more episodes just like this, be sure to subscribe. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, we're at Solutions Pod. Thanks again for listening and be sure to check out our next episode.